0: The Achaemenid Empire lasted 208 years. The Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great lasted 231. The Roman Republic lasted 233. Romanov Russia lasted 234. Today the United States of America is 244 years old. What happens next? Where do we go from here? What do we build out of the ashes? Hello, I'm Knaz Filan, and these are Notes from the End of Time. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to Notes from the End of Time. This is Knaz Filan with you. This is our eighth episode. I thank you so much for sitting through seven hours of me talking, and as we come into our eighth episode, I'm going to start with a question. Where do we go from here? We now have people shooting at each other. We saw that in Kenosha, Washington. A 17-year-old boy was attacked by several rioters. There's now two dead rioters. There's one rioter with a badly injured arm. Things are not calming down we all expected things were going to cool down the lockdowns are going to end there's really no sign of when the COVID-19 is going to subside we have no idea how much longer these protests riots are going to go on peaceful protests that involve looting and burning buildings if you will where do we go from here I know I have people who listen to me from all different political spectrums all different religious views. Where do you want to go from here? What is the ideal world you see coming out of it? What's the best possible world you, you see? And how do we avoid the worst outcomes? We really need to start talking about that because things are not getting better. Some people have accused me of some of the approaches I've taken on here, of being a bit of an antiquarian, a little bit of a Luddite. I've been critical of technology because we as a society have become so dependent on technology, dependent on technology which relies on intensive use of energy, which relies on scarce natural natural resources and which also relies on unbroken global supply chains. I don't know how long we're going to have those things. I see a number of possible scenarios for the future, but all of them essentially involve us having less access to that sort of technology. Certainly, we will be paying more for it should relations between China and the United States break. And I expect that there's going to be greater downward mobility for most middle-class Americans and even a pretty fair number of people who thought themselves upper-middle-class Americans. So I don't expect technology to go away. I'm not a Luddite, and I don't think we're all going to go back to living happily in the Shire or in a little medieval village. I expect people will be accessing the internet for a while, though they may be accessing it with older or less powerful computers than they were accustomed to. I don't think we're going to give up technology altogether. I don't think we can give technology up altogether. But I think we need to weigh and understand the way it has affected our lives. We understand, if you're listening to this, you probably understand, or at least you have a deep suspicion, that our technology has corrupted us. And so what we need to do is we need to... Go back to the people who experienced the Industrial Revolution, the Scientific Revolution, the French Revolution. We know the good things that came out of those revolutions, but now we need to look back and, find, and think about what we lost because of those revolutions. We're all happy about science. We're all happy about the advances in medicine. We all think the world's a better place without smallpox. But what did we lose in exchange for all of those gains? And how do we get that back? One of the sources I keep coming back to in my own studies is a man named Gilbert K. Chesterton, better known as G.K. Chesterton. And what I was going to do tonight is offer some selections from Chesterton's 1908 book, Orthodoxy. This was written at the time Chesterton was still a high church Anglican. He would later go on in 1922 to convert to Roman Catholicism and wrote some absolutely brilliant books on that subject. Orthodoxy is primarily... A Defense of Christian Tradition and the Christian Faith Against the Modern Progressive Worldview of Victorian England. In that book, Chesterton said, Modern masters of science are much impressed with the need of beginning all inquiry with a fact. The ancient masters of religion were quite equally impressed with that necessity. They began with the fact of sin, a fact as practical as potatoes, Whether or no man could be washed of miraculous waters, there was no doubt that at any rate he needed washing. But certain religious leaders in London, not mere materialists, have begun in our day not to deny the highly disputable water, but to deny the indisputable dirt. Certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved, Some, in their almost too fastidious spirituality, admit divine sinlessness which they cannot see even in their dreams, but they essentially deny human sin which they can see in the street. The strongest saints and the strongest skeptics alike took positive evil as the starting point of their argument. If it be true, as it certainly is, that a man could feel exquisite happiness in skinning a cat, then the religious philosopher can only draw one of two deductions. He must either deny the existence of God, as all atheists do, or he must deny the present union between God and man, as all Christians do. The new theologians seem to think it a highly rationalistic solution to deny the cat. And that's one of the great debates of the modern world. Can human beings be perfected? Are human beings inherently good or inherently evil? The word sin makes a lot of people nervous. Of course, how dare you try to impose your Christian morals on me? But the fact of the matter is, it's very difficult to look at human history, to look at the archaeological evidence we've seen from prehistory, And get the idea that human beings are an inherently loving, tolerant, just, and good species. We've been committing atrocities against each other since well before Otsie the Iceman got killed by bandits. And that's true of every civilization, every society, across cultures. We've seen bloodshed, warfare, we see oppression... If you take an honest inventory of your personal life, of your daily life, you'll find all kinds of times when you've failed, when you've turned away from good and done the wrong thing because it was convenient or because you were tempted. You've suffered from people who did wrong to you. Maybe you suffered horribly. You know, we all know there are a lot of horrible people out there and Christianity has a convenient word for them. They call them sinners. The Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church states, Sin is an offense against reason, truth, and right conscience. It is failure in genuine love for God and neighbor caused by a perverse attachment to certain goods. It wounds the nature of man and injures human solidarity. It has been defined as an utterance, a deed, or a desire contrary to the eternal law. They then go on to distinguish between venial and mortal sins and denote, Sin creates a proclivity to sin. It engenders vice by repetition of the same acts. This results in perverse inclinations which cloud conscience and corrupt the concrete judgment of good and evil. Thus, sin tends to reproduce itself and reinforce itself, but it cannot destroy the moral sense at its root. Sin is a personal act. Moreover, we have a responsibility for the sins committed by others when we cooperate in them, by participating directly and voluntarily in them, by ordering, advising, praising, or approving them, by not disclosing or not hindering them when we have an obligation to do so, by protecting evildoers. Thus sin makes men accomplices of one another and causes concupiscence, violence, and injustice to reign among them. Sins give rise to social situations and institutions that are contrary to the divine goodness. Structures of sin are the expression and effect of personal sins, They lead their victims to do evil in their turn. In an analogous sense, they constitute a social sin. And this is all very heavy, repressive stuff here. You want me to tell somebody what to do with their lives. You want me to interfere with them and thrust my vision of morality in their face, thrust my religion on them. But there's also an important point here. Many of the activities that the church condemned as sinful, it condemned because they were inimical to good order. The church gave us seven deadly sins that they felt were especially corrosive to good character and to being a good person. Pride, avarice, envy, wrath, lust, gluttony, and sloth. Yes, the fear of hell kept many a child up at night, once in a while. Yes, people did become morbidly obsessed with the idea of sin and the idea that they were damned. But everybody knew that all had fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody in the kingdom was a sinner. And if it was a Christian kingdom, every Christian subject in the kingdom knew that Christ had died for his sins or for her sins, and they believe that redemption was available to even the most ardent sinner. We've largely gotten rid of the idea of sin today. Certainly we challenge a lot of the categories which were formerly called sinful. There's a lot more tolerance of homosexual activity, abortion, We've really challenged the idea that women should be expected to live up to a standard of modesty. You know, we call that slut-shaming and kink-shaming. Where we once wrote violence off as a sign of man's hu- innate human depravity, today we look instead to the root causes. We try to find out the social reasons why people become violent. We look at economic disparities We look at all sorts of things, granted if you look down some lanes of inquiry you can get yourself into a great deal of trouble, but instead of just condemning violent behavior as sinful, we now see it as a disordered behavior and we seek for the ways in which we can cure or manage that disordered behavior. Now don't get me wrong, there is definitely something to be said for that approach, though I would note Christianity had recognized many of those social ills centuries before our technological era and made efforts to address them, but the social sciences have certainly provided us with some very useful tools towards addressing those issues. But where they've given us all these new ways of addressing sin and dealing with sin and cataloging sin, they stumble on the issue of redemption. I will grant you, redemption in medieval Europe, in the pre-technological world, was a messy and flawed process. The process of redemption for one's sins could involve being broken on a wheel, burned at the stake, hung at the gallows... Christian Europe certainly engaged in many acts that we today would consider cruel. But those punishments were also intended as a means by which the prisoner could play a role in his own redemption. There was always great care taken that the prisoner would be blessed before death, would be encouraged to say a prayer, would be encouraged to repent even during torture, there's one case where I think it was Balthasar Gracia and the guy who kills William of Orange. They put this guy through an execution that's essentially two weeks of unremitting torture. It ends with him being broken on the wheel. And as he's begging for water, they decide to give it to him. This is the assassin of their beloved king because they didn't want his immortal soul to fall into damnation through falling into despair and cursing God. This is a really important point here. This was thought as a means by which a wrong against God could be aven- could be avenged, could be taken care of, but it was also thought of as a means by which the wrongdoer could find his way back to God. In the modern scientific worldview, there's really no room for that sort of redemption. You know, as I said before, there's only curing... The problem, what you know, the priests of today, that what we call the doctors and the professionals, see as problematic behavior, we could either cure that, we can learn to manage it, we can give people the right pills, give them the right social environment, and that will take care of the problem. But what do we do for the people who are incapable of living up to those goals? How do we handle them? And within Christianity, we start with the premise that all are flawed. Again, as I had said before, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means that we are encouraged, nay obligated, to treat the sins of others with the same mercy and compassion we would have shown for our own sins. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not allowed to pass judgment. If we're on a jury, we certainly are allowed to convict somebody who's guilty of murder, even if we've been guilty of adultery and shoplifting. But it does mean we have a duty to tell them where they have sinned and when they have sinned, to listen to their explanations for why they sinned, to encourage them to repent of their sin and to turn away from it. And that approach has certainly been deprecated today. It's considered bad form to tell somebody you think their behavior is sinful. I do note that many of the people that have been hopping the loudest on this freedom is good, sin is repression bandwagon are people who are making a great deal of money off industries and activities that we used to consider sinful. And the people who shout the loudest about freedom of speech and freedom of markets seem only too happy to offload the social costs of sin onto the population while profiting handsomely from its rewards. These people are only too happy to hire teams of top scientists to explain there are no social costs of their sins. To tell us that anybody who thinks otherwise is just superstitious and ignorant. That they want to bully children who are tempted to these sins. They want to make children feel like sex is bad and their bodies are shameful. They fund academics who will preach that we can have a brave new world free of war and injustice and poverty if we'll just get rid of all those outmoded superstitions, if we'll stop living by thou shalts and thou shalt nots and start instead working towards a world where everybody can be the best individual, he, she, or whatever pronoun they prefer is celebrated for living the life they choose. But all their efforts to free us from the knowledge of good and evil have not sent us back to Eden. They have resulted in exactly the sort of social and personal disorder and degeneration that the Vatican's catechism and that G.K. Chesterton would have predicted as a direct consequence of tolerating sin. And because of our loss of that moral compass of the simple basic rules of good and evil as set forth clearly and understood by everybody within the community, we've lost the community center itself. We've degenerated into a bunch of individuals, and ultimately we wind up falling into solipsism. Which leads us into another passage from Chesterton's Orthodoxy, There is a skeptic far more terrible than he who believes that everything began in matter. It is possible to meet the skeptic who believes that everything began in himself. He doubts not the existence of angels or devils, but the existence of men and cows. For him, his own friends are a mythology made up by himself. He created his own father and his own mother. This horrible fancy has in it something decidedly attractive to the somewhat mystical egoism of our day. The publisher who thought that men would get on if they believed in themselves. Those seekers after the Superman who are always looking for him in the looking glass. Those writers who talk about impressing their personalities instead of creating life for the world. All these people have really only an inch between them and this awful emptiness. Then, when this kindly world all round the man has been blackened out like a lie, when friends fade into ghosts and the foundations of the world fail, then when the man, believing in nothing and in no man, is alone in his own nightmare, then the great individualistic motto shall be written over him in avenging irony. The stars will be only dots in the blackness of his own brain. His mother's face will be only a sketch from his own insane pencil on the walls of his cell, but over his cell shall be written, with dreadful truth, he believes in himself. And a hundred and twelve years after that was published, it's such a brilliant description of our internet generation. We have friends, you, I have a couple thousand friends on my Facebook page. You've probably got hundreds, maybe thousands of followers on your social media. How many of them do you know personally? Some of them may be bots. If you've had a political conversation on the internet, you've probably on more than one occasion been accused of being a bot for the Russians, for the Chinese, for George Soros... For the Koch brothers, there's no shortage of people out there who are hiring bots or who are perceived to hire bots. There's no certainty that anybody you're talking with on the internet is not a dog, as Scott Adams would have it. And particularly over the past few years, we've seen this enormous and ever-growing distrust of mainstream media, of official sources. And I will grant you that distrust was largely earned, but the consequence of it was we lost yet another community center. Walter Cronkite complained about the Vietnam War. Lyndon Johnson looked over at his advisor and said, if I've lost Walter Cronkite, I've lost Middle America. We don't have a big journalist. We don't have any mainstream publication that has the dignity, the gravitas, and is as widely believed as the mid-century CBS News or the New York Times. We now see news based on what we want to read. We live in what's called information bubbles where we only see things that pre-confirm our prejudices and are never exposed to things that might make us challenge our view. Instead of being encouraged to conform to community standards and be a peaceful and productive member of the community, we're now encouraged to flout community standards and to become the individual we want to be. We're allowed to choose from any of 100 different hair colors, 57 different genders, a whole bunch of dietary choices, lifestyle choices. We're allowed to choose between 150 different Ways of having an orgasm, and we're even allowed to identify ourselves by our disinterest in having orgasms. We're allowed to identify ourselves by our Harry Potter house. We're allowed to identify ourselves based on a quiz that tells us which Tolkien character we are. And all of this focus on identity doesn't strike me as a people who are confident in their identities and who are secure in their identities. It looks for to me, for all the world, like a bunch of people who are desperately, desperately searching for an identity. The French Revolution was the age of man. Mankind was going to dethrone God, and we were going to create our own heaven on earth in a new utopia. That's the spirit which also pervades Marxism and all of the related doctrines to that. The idea that mankind together can change the world. Postmodernism changed the focus from mankind to the brotherhood of man, the community of man, to the cult of the individual. And I don't think anybody who's ever taken even a cursory look at human history could say that mankind is perfect and worthy of being worshipped and worthy of being the center of the universe. And if mankind as a whole doesn't measure up to that standard. How is the individual supposed to measure up? Never mind metaphysics. There's a basic problem of human biology. We are pack primates. We identify ourselves based on our place within our pack, within our community. Today we romanticize the lone wolf and the outlaw. But the lone wolf was a sick wolf who was probably going to be dead within a few days. The outlaw, it was forbidden to provide any shelter or food or assistance to an outlaw, and you were in fact encouraged to kill him. Most outlaws wound up dying on the moors. We idealize rebels because we live in a society that has the resources to tolerate outcasts and rebels. That is secure enough in its own power to tolerate dissent and even encourage it, so that the populace feels more free and able to dissent. And perhaps most importantly, it allows dissent allows us to feel like we're an individual against the herd. Remember that whole cat that whole worship of the individual gives the individual a lot of freedoms, although that is debatable in practice. But It also lays an enormous responsibility on the individual. Many of those individuals are going to gravitate towards Religious organizations are organizations which function as religious organizations. Woke culture and the social justice movement, I'm certainly not the first person to notice this and I won't be the last, has many things in common with a religious revival. It is a secular and an atheistic faith, but it's certainly a faith. You have doctrines, you have sins, you have enemies, you even have original sin in the form of white privilege. And where Christianity offers a new life in Jesus Christ, a membership in the church, woke culture gives you an ever-growing number of identities you can choose for yourself and promises to help you become a better individual so long as you work with them to create a freer and just and more tolerant world. The advocate of wokeness gets to be a very special cog in the big machine and is reminded of their special status as a big cog by constant calls for pride, disability pride, Black pride, LGBT pride, fat pride, BDSM pride, polyamory pride. There's no shortage of things you're supposed to feel proud of, things that remind you that you're special, that you're not like those boring cishead others. Within Christian tradition, certainly within Roman Catholicism, pride has historically been seen as one of the seven deadly sins pride goeth before a fall some of the ways we can be guilty of the sin of pride include taking personal credit for gifts or possessions as if they had not been received from god by glorying in our achievements as if they were not primarily the result of divine goodness and or and grace by minimizing one's defects or claiming qualities that are not actually possessed by holding oneself superior to others or disdaining them because they lack what the proud person has by magnifying the defects of others or dwelling on them. When pride is carried to the extent that a person is unwilling to acknowledge dependence on God and refuses to submit his or her will to God or lawful authority, it is a grave sin. The gravity arises from the fact that a person shows contempt for God or of those who take his place. Otherwise, pride is said to be imperfect and venially wrong. While not all sins are pride, it can lead to all sorts of sins, notably presumption, ambition, vainglory, boasting, hypocrisy, strife, and disobedience. Pride strives for perverse excellence, it despises others, and depending on its perversity even looks down upon God. The idea that power leads to people's heads swelling and to them making bad decisions after. It's a Christian idea, but it's not just a Christian idea. There's a reason that the Romans had a guy riding alongside the emperor going, Remember thou art mortal, remember thou art mortal. The earliest epic we have a full record of, the Gilgamesh epic, talks about how Gilgamesh was a bad ruler because of his pride and how he despoiled the land and raped the maidens and how only after failing to conquer death does he become a better ruler through being humiliated and learning his limitations. This is not a new idea. This one literally is old as time. The idea of pride, like all of the ideas of sin, function as an error checker It's info we feed into our superego, if I can be forgiven for using a Freudian term, that helps us direct our actions and shapes the way we engage with our community. The problem with most ethical philosophies is they're written by philosophers, by very intelligent people who spent a great deal of time thinking about the subject and writing at length about the subject. In the here and now, let's take an example It's very difficult to weigh all of the possible variables of the utilitarian question, should I or should I not steal this purse? How much does the purse holder need the money? How much do I need the money? What cause am I going to support with the money I get from stealing this purse? Is it a good cause or a bad cause? How much utility will everybody get out of that? And what will the total net happiness be? The Christian position on this would be much simpler. Thou shalt not steal. Stealing is a sin. Don't do it. It's another universally acknowledged truth that theft is bad and theft is harmful to individuals and communities. In the long run, it's best for us to discourage theft. Stealing is a sin may very well work better to discourage theft then stealing is only acceptable when you have good cause for stealing. And these are not arbitrary rules. I quoted Catholic culture earlier. I've also quoted the Vatican Catechism. These documents are available. They're basically the tech manuals for anybody that wants to explore further why the church takes particular positions on particular subjects, But it's not entirely necessary for them to do so, just like it's not necessary that you know how to code in C to use your Windows computer. I am not saying this is the only way one can strengthen, care for, and feed the superego. There are certainly other religious traditions which have come up with very similar ideas on human behavior. Like like I love to say, Tolkien's quote about everybody who sails towards a harbor of truth is going to like sail shakily towards it. Our ancestors were not idiots. Our neighbors were not idiots. Human beings are not idiots. If we all look at the same evidence, we're all going to come to very similar conclusions. But I will say that these traditions did a better job of producing stable peaceful and happy societies that these traditions led to saner and more stable human beings than this current cult of identity which holds the individual to be preeminent and says that you are your own god I believe that down that way lies only hedonism, nihilism, and despair. Again, everybody likes to talk about falsifiability and verifiability. You see this today. You see we've become a society obsessed with hedonism. We've got a society where for young girls getting an OnlyFans account as soon as they turn legal is a rite of passage. You've got epidemics of suicide, of opiate abuse, of drug abuse, alcoholism. You can see despair in the antidepressant prescriptions, in the men putting gun barrels in their mouths. You can see it in the streets where people have been rioting and burning and screaming with no real plan It's just this outburst of blind rage and lashing out against a world that's made them very, very angry. This again is another thing Chesterton talked about in yet another excerpt from Orthodoxy. The Jacobine could tell you not only the system he would rebel against, but what was more important, the system he would not rebel against, the system he would trust. But the new rebel is a skeptic and will not entirely trust anything. He has no loyalty, therefore he can never be really a revolutionist, and the fact that he doubts everything really gets in his way when he wants to denounce anything. For all, denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind, and the modern revolutionist doubts not only the institution he denounces, but the doctrine by which he denounces it. Thus, he writes one book complaining that imperial oppression insults the purity of women, and then he writes another book about the sex problem in which he insults it himself. He curses the sultan because Christian girls lose their virginity, and then curses Mrs. Grundy because they keep it. As a politician, he will cry out that war is a waste of life, and then as a philosopher, that all life is waste of time. A Russian pessimist will denounce a policeman for killing a peasant, and then prove by the highest philosophical principles that the peasant ought to have killed himself. A man denounces marriage as a lie, and then denounces aristocratic profligates for treating it as a lie. In short, the modern revolutionist, being an infinite skeptic, is always engaged in undermining his own minds. In his book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality. In his book on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on men. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. I don't know if you've noticed, but... Our political atmosphere has gotten kind of heated over the past several years, where we've been in this constant state of anger and outrage. I'll also notice right after Donald Trump was elected, powerful Democratic politicians, leading journalists, set themselves up as what they called the resistance, as if they were going to resist the Nazi fascist tyranny which we had brought into office when the Russians got Donald Trump elected. I will note that I'm not the greatest scholar of World War II history, but I'm reasonably well-read on the subject. And resistance movements which publicly declare themselves the resistance and state that they intend to overthrow the tyrant in charge rarely do as well as Robert Reich, Rachel Maddow, John Oliver. There's a whole list of resistance members against Trump who didn't get their fingernails torn out in underground prisons, who didn't get assassinated, who didn't even get the IRS up their tuckuses, And that's because rebellion is sexy. Rebellion is exciting. It's the reason kids prove they're not part of the mainstream by dressing in the clothing and listening to the music of one subculture or another. It's why you see suburban moms lining up at corporate-funded protests, fighting the establishment by promoting whatever cause the establishment finds fashionable or useful this season. And a society as focused with individuality as ours is, Being a rebel helps you stand out from the pack where once the idea was to fit in, today the idea is to stand out. And If you rebel in the right ways, you'll find a crowd of people who will rebel alongside you wearing the same uniform you're wearing and arguing that they too are individuals. And because protesters protest and rioters riot, a lot of the people who are involved here are here not so much because they care a great deal about the cause, some might even be hard pressed to tell you exactly what the cause was. They're there to establish their place within the pack, the community, their circle of friends, as somebody who cares, as a woke white person. And this is not an entirely new phenomenon, believe it or not, during the 1960s at the famous college protests. Many of the people that were there were only there to prop up their social status. And believe it or not, there were even a few college-age men who showed up at these protests with the hope of finding nubile young sex partners. Protest organizers have always been aware of this. They know that numbers are more important than motivations in the grand scheme of things, and so they've used that social status seeking, they've used simmering tensions and anger in neighborhoods, and they've channeled it toward their own ends, because if your only end is going to a protest, you would best assume that the people throwing that protest, the people busing you there, or the people organizing it, are doing it for their own ends, which are greater than, let's just trash stuff, or just let's just chant in the street. For over three months now, we've seen peaceful protests and violent riots going on. Violent protesters have largely been coddled by domestic police forces. There have been some arrests, there have been some rubber bullets, there have been some tear gas. Two words, Chattamon Square, the response which rioters and protesters have received has been, if anything, disproportionately lax compared to the damage being done. Is this because... The Democratic mayors fear the rioters, or is that because the rioters are acting in the interests of the people who fund and control the mayors and the governors who are allowing it to happen? Major corporations are giving billions of dollars to support Black Lives Matter and similar causes. Are they supporting these protests because they're scared of the looters and hope that they'll somehow buy protection for their stores? Are they doing this out of the sympathy of their hearts, or are they doing this as a marketing opportunity? When you're a revolutionary and you see riots like this, it's pretty easy to get caught up in the whole grand sweep of things and all the excitement. But stop and ask yourself, why are these people Funding protesters who are calling for a revolution. What kind of revolution do all of these supporters hope to see after the smoke clears here? Now we're getting back to the question I asked in the beginning of this episode. What is your end game? The people who are funding this. Have an end game in mind. They have goals. They have things they hope to accomplish. What do you hope to accomplish? We know you hate the system. We hate the system too. We know you want to see the system fall. We want to see the system fall too. What do you want to build from the ashes? The war has just heated up. We've got casualties on both sides now. There was a shooting of a patriot in Portland. Of course, there was a shooting of the anti-Fa people in Kenosha. We've drawn blood. We're no longer just fighting in the streets with sticks and bats. Now we're going at each other with guns. You've got to ask yourself, what are you willing to die for? And what are you willing to kill for? You've got to ask yourself, who do you trust? And what do you hope to accomplish out of this if you're angry I get that you're angry we're all angry we can fritter away that anger fighting each other we can fritter away that anger fighting someone else's war for someone else's ends or we can channel that anger into building a better world for ourselves for our families for our communities for our descendants But we won't be able to do that until we know what we're fighting for, who we're fighting with, and what we want to build when it's all over. And toward that end, I have been spending a lot of time lately looking backward rather than forward, looking through history for an answer to these problems. You might think it would make more sense to look to current events, but current events are very difficult to suss out because, first of all, you're in the middle of them. It's very hard to get an objective view of events you're living through, and B, today, it's increasingly difficult to know what is and is not a reliable source as to what's happening in the world with current events. Everything needs to be taken with a grain of salt. The facts in history are much clearer, much more laid out. Yes, of course, I know history is written by the victors and historians regularly interpret and reinterpret different events of history. But they've got that comfortable distinction of being in the past. They can serve as a landmark for us, as guideposts. What did our ancestors do when they were in similar situations? How did they survive? How did they rebuild? How did they overthrow their oppressors? In my case... As with G.K. Chesterton, I found a lot of that information available within the Orthodox Christian tradition. I found a lot of information there, which was very helpful, very valuable against the, pro- the problems which I see, the social rot which I've been talking about in other episodes and again, this isn't current stuff. You know, well, what can the 4th century have to say about the problems of the 21st? And again, here's a quote from Chesterton "An Orthodoxy. An imbecile habit has arisen in modern controversy of saying that such and such a creed can be held in one age but cannot be held in another. Some dogma, we are told, was credible in the 12th century but is not credible in the 20th you might as well say that a certain philosophy can be believed on Mondays, but cannot be believed on Tuesdays. You might as well say of a view of the cosmos that it was suitable to half-past three, but not suitable to half-past four. What a man can believe depends upon his philosophy, not the clock on the clock or the century. If a man believes in unalterable natural law, he cannot believe in any miracle in any age. If a man believes in a will behind law, he can believe in any miracle in any age. Therefore, in dealing with any historical answer, the point is not whether it was given in our time, but whether it was given in answer to our question. And that's very much the approach I've been taking. If I can look back at history, in the case of the Catholic Church, there's 2,000 year history, at least 1,600 years of it, very well documented. I can look back at the answers they had to questions and, and when you do that, you start noticing patterns and noticing patterns can get you in a lot of trouble in today's society, but it's also a really good way of predicting the future by looking at the past today people think the church is on its last legs and Christianity is soon to go the way of the dinosaur. They probably thought that in 33 AD after the founder got crucified. They probably thought that after Nero started burning them in the arenas. They thought that that the Diocletian persecutions were going to wipe Christianity out when there was the great schism between the East and the West in the ninth century. I'm sorry, they were convinced this is the beginning of the end, and now, of course, Christendom is no longer united. Christendom will fall. Then, when they lost the Holy Land in the Crusades began and they found it and lost it you know oh no christianity is going to fall to islam and then in 1454 when constantinople becomes istanbul this is the end of christendom you know islam is finally going to triumph and they're going to march through europe and then there was that unpleasantness with that monk luther nailing up inflammatory pamphlets on the wall and of course yet another split with christendom Then England decides to found its own official church, and that's going to be a catastrophe. Yet somehow, through all of these catastrophes and all of these changes, through all of this changing world, the church has remained a constant, stable presence. And when I look at Western civilization, I see a civilization that for the past 1,700 years has been intimately involved with Christianity, and for at least the last 1,000 years, generally longer throughout most of Europe, has been a Christian community. That does not mean an observant Christian community, at least it certainly doesn't today, but it does mean a community whose ideals were rooted in a Christian tradition, were rooted in the Bible, in the case of the Catholic countries, were rooted in the teachings also of the Church Fathers and the Church, in the case of Protestant countries, in the works of Luther, Calvin, Knox, many other spiritual leaders, but they were all influenced by Christianity even the french revolution even communism was influenced by christianity in that both were largely reactions against christianity we cannot understand our ancestors if we don't understand and engage with christianity and we can't find a way to clean up the mess, which is the post-Christian world, until we look back to, the, to our ancestral faith and find our way back to those Christian structures and those Christian traditions and use them to create a new and a better post-post-Christian world. That cornerstone will serve as our foundation and those eternal truths will be the structure we use to create our new society. And we will not make our new society until we make ourselves better people who are better fit to live in a better society. Sin is both social and personal. Our quest has to be both social and personal. Christianity was historically in the West The tradition we relied on for that social quest and that personal quest. Christianity also served as a common moral lingua franca that helped with trade and with commerce and diplomacy across empires. It can still serve that same purpose in today's world. People who hold the same eternal truths may have big doctrinal differences. We may be competing for resources with each other. We may have historical grievances. But we share that same common Christian moral language. We have the same basic definition of sin. We have the same basic expectations of honesty and the same basic distaste for lying and horror of perjury. No, this doesn't mean we're automatically going to be best friends. Negotiators rarely find themselves in ideal conditions where they're talking with people they like over non-controversial topics. But negotiators also find that every bit of common ground they can find makes their job much easier. Christians are going to be able to work between denominations and sort out their differences between themselves more easily. They are going to be able to organize together more effectively than they are with non-Christians. And I think... Any non-Christian group, certainly any explicitly anti-Christian group, is going to have a very hard time finding that kind of cohesion. And no, this isn't about building a theocracy and forcing people to attend church at gunpoint. I'm much more interested in making churches places worth attending again, making them the community centers and founts of social and moral and spiritual support, which they once were. And the way to do that is not by taking over a kingdom and baptizing the population at sword point. I will grant you, we tried that in Spain. It's generally frowned upon nowadays and with good reason. I believe Christianity is worth exploring, and I intend to keep presenting some of the reasons why I think so. I think Christianity provides a useful moral framework, and I intend to show the reasons why that is, and to show the reasons why the frameworks which we are using today are so utterly unsuccessful. My shield is a tradition that saved an empire. My weapons are the truths found over 2,000 years of heavy research from some of the greatest minds Western civilization produced. That tradition is my natal faith, so I will use it to guide my life. That tradition is the traditional faith of my family, and so I will use it to protect my family. That religion is the traditional faith of my people, and so I will use it to save my people. That religion is the traditional faith of the West, and so I will use it to save the West. I may fail in my quest, and if so, I will fall as my ancestors fell, and I may triumph in my quest, and if I do, I will triumph as my ancestors triumphed. I may be Parsifal, or I may be Don Quixote. Time will tell, but I know this. If I go forward as a pure fool, or just as a pure madman, I will go in the service of the king, and I will follow the faith of my fathers, and as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And in closing, let me offer yet again another thought from G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxies. I shall take in order the next objection offered, the idea that Christianity belongs to the Dark Ages. Here I did not satisfy myself with reading modern generalizations. I read a little history. And in history I found that Christianity, so far from belonging to the Dark Ages, was the one path across the Dark Ages that was not dark. It was a shining bridge connecting two shining civilizations. If anyone says that the faith arose in ignorance and savagery, the answer is simple. It didn't. It arose in the Mediterranean civilization in the full summer of the Roman Empire, The world was swarming with skeptics, and pantheism was as plain as the sun when Constantine nailed the cross to the mast. It is perfectly true that afterward the ship sank, but it is far more extraordinary that the ship came up again, repainted and glittering, with the cross still at the top. This is the amazing thing the religion did. It turned a sunken ship into a submarine. THE ARK LIVED UNDER THE LOAD OF WATERS AFTER BEING BURIED UNDER THE DEBRIS OF DYNASTIES AND CLANS, WE AROSE AND REMEMBERED ROME. IF OUR FAITH HAD BEEN A MERE FAD OF THE FADING EMPIRE, FAD WOULD HAVE FOLLOWED FAD IN THE TWILIGHT, AND IF THE CIVILIZATION EVER RE-EMERGED, AND MANY SUCH HAVE NEVER reemerged, IT WOULD HAVE BEEN UNDER SOME NEW BARBARIC FLAG. BUT THE CHRISTIAN CHURCH WAS THE LAST LIFE OF THE OLD SOCIETY, and also the first life of the new. She took the people who were forgetting how to make an arch, and she taught them how to invent the Gothic arch. In a word, the most absurd thing that could be said of the church is the thing we have all heard said of it. How can we say that the church wishes to bring back us back into the Dark Ages? The church was the only thing that ever brought us out of them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This has been Notes from the End of Time. I'm Kenaz Filin. Thank you once again for listening, and may God bless us, each and every one.